0: So as we jump into this, uh, I'm not going to have time to go back and recap uh, the whole first 11 chapters of the book of Revelation. We are going to do a little bit of review, but it's going to be brief because we've got to keep moving on. And so we're going to pick it up with chapter 12 this morning. And if you were here last semester, you remember that the way we ended in December was in chapter 11 and chapter 11 is really the midway point of the book. It's not only chapter 11 of 22 books. It's it's a midway point kind of uh, in the way the book is treated. It summarizes and brings us to uh, a somewhat of a conclusion and a break. And we're going to look at that as we get into chapter 12. Chapter 11 ended with the uh, seventh trumpet being blown. You remember there were seven seals? The seventh seal gets opened by Jesus Christ and it reveals the seven trumpets, and they come in sequential order, and we ended with the seventh trumpet being blown. And instead of, like the rest of the seven trumpets, with something bad happening, plague, disaster, demons being released, instead of those things happening, it ended with praise. So the seventh trumpet, and it's supposed to be bringing judgment, and it will, we'll see it, it brought praise, and that's how chapter 11 ended in kind of an interesting way. Here's, here's what they said. This is the 24 elders, this is the five living beasts, this is the, uh, the martyrs that are in heaven who've died during the tribulation. They say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who, was in, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And what we pointed out is that this is kind of uh, interesting We're only at the seventh trumpet. We've got seven bold judgments to come. Jesus Christ has not returned, and yet they're praising God as if everything's done. We're finished. He's begun to reign. It seems a bit premature, but it's not. Because what they know is, because they're in heaven, they're worshiping God Almighty, they know that even though there's seven bold judgments to come, we're near the end. And one of the things I tried to stress last semester is as you as you move through this seven-year period called the Tribulation, which we believe is a literal seven years, it's typically divided into three-and-a-half-year segments, the first half and the second half, obviously. The second half is called the Great Tribulation. If you recall, here, here's the kind of the timeline in a, in a brief overview, Jesus Christ, we believe, is going to come back for the church and the church will be raptured. Those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, who are alive at that time, if he came today, we would be raptured. We would go to be with him. First Thessalonians tells us that. That will usher in with the the leaving of the church, it will usher in the period of the tribulation. Antichrist comes to power during the first half of the tribulation. And one of the things he does is he sets up a peace treaty. He, He arranges a peace treaty between the nations and Israel and Israel is allowed to rebuild the temple on the temple Mount in Jerusalem, major peace treaty. Just imagine that happening today that, that that could take place that on that temple Mount where the dome of the rock sits, which is a Muslim shrine, they will rebuild the temple and they will reinstitute the sacrificial system. So for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, it's actually pretty nice. And the Jews are kind of in bed with Antichrist because he's negotiated this peace treaty. And the Antichrist is, becomes very powerful. But three and a half years in, he erects a statue of himself in the temple and institutes worship of himself in place of God, and he shuts down the sacrificial system. And then he turns on the people of Israel and he begins to persecute them. That's the second three and a half years It's called the Great Tribulation, and the intensity of it is amazing. But here we have, at the end of chapter 11, they're up in heaven praising God. And again, it seems a little bit premature because we had 11 chapters to go. But they're singing because they know and they have faith and they trust that God is going to complete what he began. And for me, that's really the purpose of this book, is to encourage you and I In spite of all the the symbolism, in spite of even all the controversy over this book, it should encourage us that our God is in control, our God is sovereign, our God has a plan, and He's working that plan to perfection. And as we move across the timeline of that seven years towards the end when Christ does return to earth in His second coming, we're getting closer and closer to that point. And that's why they're singing. That's why they're celebrating. That's why they're praising God, because the great tribulation does have an end. It has a good end. This book, not just the book of Revelation, but this entire book that we call the Bible has a really wonderful end to it. If you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's really what John is being told as we move into chapter 12 and on through the rest of the book but we reach a point now of another pause in the action. We've seen it before. When we get to the seventh of anything, the seventh seal, now the seventh trumpet, it's like God takes a break and he takes a detour and he deals with something else. And we see that now. The seventh trumpet has been blown, but all we've seen thus far is praising up in heaven and we've not seen anything else. And so it's like God is going to step back, and he's going to reemphasize some things for John to help John, and by extension, help you and I. And he's going to revisit some really important things at this halfway point in the book. Remember, John is getting this in the form of a vision, a series of visions, and he's writing it down for the seven churches, but again, by extension, for churches throughout the ages, including this one. So chapters 12 through 18 are going to be God's retelling of the story, but visiting some very important points that he's kind of blown past. And he's going to elaborate on them. And he's going to introduce us to some really important people who play a significant role in the rest of the tribulation story. So here they are. And I'm going to blow through these right now because we're going to elaborate on them as we move through the next weeks. But we're going to get introduced to the woman, the dragon, the male child. Next week, the first beast, the second beast, the three angels in chapter 14, the seven angels in chapter 15, the seven bulls in chapter 16, the prostitute, the beast with seven heads, Babylon the great, and then finally the marriage supper of the lamb. That takes us through 12 through chapter 19. This, what's interesting is that as we move into the second half of the book, if you thought the first half of the book was symbolic... The second half of the book is incredibly symbolic. And as a matter of fact, chapter 12 is called the most symbolic chapter in the most symbolic book of the Bible. It's got all kinds of symbolism and we're going to have to visit that and we're going to have to deal with it and we're going to have to talk about it. And we may not always agree on it, but it's there for a reason. And so we need to just dig into it and find out what's going on. So chapter 12 opens up with, guess what, a sign. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven to John. So John, after the singing in heaven, after the praise in heaven, gets a sign from God. And it's a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. We're told she's pregnant, she's crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. So you've got this woman. We're told it's a sign. We have to ask, okay, who's the woman? And this question has been asked for centuries, and there's a number of different questions that have been given to this question. And so we got to decide who we think this woman is. Who is she? Is she literal or is she figurative? Okay? That's always important when you're looking at the book of Revelation. And as I've told you before, we're coming out this as literally as we possibly can. Knowing that the book is book is full of figurative language, allegorical language, symbolic language. So there are times when we know it's symbolic, there are times we know it's literal, and we've got to decide which is which. And that's a case here. Who is this woman? What is this woman? Well, we get a a clue from John. He saw a great sign. How is that a clue? Well, here's what it means: great is the word mega in the Greek. refers to not just size, but significance. He sees something incredibly significant. A, because he sees it coming from heaven, in heaven, but it's gonna symbolize something else. And that word sign in the Greek literally means a symbol that points to a reality. See, one of the things that drives me crazy about many of the commentators on the book of Revelation is they wanna make it all symbolic but it doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't really point to anything. It's just allegorical, it's metaphorical. And there are times when the book does that, but for the most part, it's representing something incredibly real. This book is meant to be taken realistically, literally in the sense that it's telling us about things that are going to happen. It's not the figment of some guy's imagination. It's not somebody on mushrooms. This is from God. It's the revelation of Christ given by God to John, and it's then been given to us. It's real. So, this woman, whoever, whatever she is, represents something real. And that's important. And it's going to be really important to understanding the rest of the book and all that happens in it. So, we get these descriptors in the verses we just read verses one through three of this woman a great sign, a symbol of something real. What are the descriptors? Well, she's obviously some kind of royalty because she's wearing a crown. She has significance about her. She's also got subjects. There's going to be some aspect of worship of her. Also that she's in the middle of childbirth. That's pretty significant. If any of you are fathers and you uh, have children. Well, obviously, if you're a father, you have children. Um, and you were at the birth of any of your children. I have six kids. I was at the birth of every one of them. And I saw my wife's personality change six different times. You know, head spin around, you know, <laughs> saying things she shouldn't say. This is significant. This is a woman. She's in the midst of, in the middle of childbirth, not pregnant in the middle of giving birth. That's pretty significant. It's a a key point in this whole thing. But none of these things tell us who she is. They help, they point, but they don't really tell us. And you can see if you look at this, um, back during the Middle Ages, that really the key answer to the question, who is this woman, was Mary. And the Catholic Church propagated that, and they believed it, and they taught it, and many of the early Reformers believed that. I don't believe that. I don't think that's who this is talking about, and you'll find out in just a second why I think that. But you can see that, you know, well, maybe it's Mary. Mary is a woman. Mary is somewhat royalty. She gave birth to the Son of God. She was pregnant. She, so maybe it's Mary, but I don't think that's what the passage tells us. So we have to look elsewhere. When you study the book of Revelation, just like when you study any other book of the Bible, you have to include the rest of the Bible. You don't study these books as standalones. They're not 66 books written over a 1,500 year period of time. They're one book written by one author, God. And they all go together, and we have to take them that way. Revelation is a part of the canon of Scripture, it was included from the first century on. Have there been arguments about that over the centuries? Yes, but if you go back to the writings of the earliest church fathers, they believed that this was a book to be included in the canon of scripture written by John the Apostle. And so that's the reason we're studying it. And it, like every other book, complements and completes the rest of the book. So if you're gonna study Revelation, and we've already done it, we've gone back and looked at Daniel, we've looked at Zechariah, you look at Amos, all these books fit together. And they complete one another. They complement one another. So if we want to know who this woman is, we got to look not just in the book of Revelation. we got to look back into the Old Testament and see what the rest of the Scripture says about Scripture. That's the key. You can't separate the Old and the New Testament. There's probably some guys in the room who love studying the New Testament. But if I were to come up here today and say, you know, next, next week we're going to do an Old Testament book. You, oh, gosh, I, know, I hate the Old Testament. Guess what? You will never understand the New Testament if you don't study the Old Testament. Why? Because it's one book. They go together. And so we have to go back and look at the Old Testament to understand the New Testament, specifically Revelation 12, and we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 37. Now look at this. And this, this to me is what makes the Bible so fun to study, is when you begin to see these links, when you begin to see these connections that God has made through his scriptures. All the way back in chapter 37, you're familiar with the story of Joseph. Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob. He was the favorite son of Jacob, but Joseph had a problem. He he had dreams. His real problem was not so much that he had dreams, but that he was always telling his dreams to his father and his brother and his mothers. This is a, a second case in point. Then he, Joseph, dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Bold, I have dreamed another dream. Big mistake, Joseph. (laughs) Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, I don't know if Joseph got this. Did did he understand what was coming out of his mouth? But his dad and brothers got it. Because look what it says. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. His father at least contemplated it. His brothers contemplated getting rid of him, killing him. And they did. Well, they didn't kill him, but they sold him into slavery. This was the last straw. But you notice the terminology here, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars, the reference to his mother. It's the same thing we see over in what? Revelation chapter 12. There's this imagery that's often repeated in the scriptures that we have to go back and look at in order to understand what's happening. See, John, who wrote this book is a good Jew. He knows the stories of scripture and he's trying to illustrate, he's trying to explain to us some things that he's seeing and he's using terminology that we'll understand, specifically terminology terminology that people living in the first century would understand, Jews living in the first century, specifically. So the son in this story in chapter 37 is Jacob. Jacob is Israel, That's important. How do we know that? Genesis chapter 35, Jacob returned from Patamaran. God appeared to him again at Bethel. God blessed him saying, your name is Jacob, but you will not be called Jacob any longer. From now on, your name will be what? Israel. And from him came the 12 tribes of Israel. And we'll look at that in a second. God called Jacob Israel. Again, that's a significant point in this whole process as we go through Revelation. So when we get to Revelation, who's the woman? Well, it appears to be, from the context, it's Israel. It's not Rachel, it's not Leah, it's Israel. Because Israel is the one who's going to give birth to who? The Messiah. See, she's pregnant. Israel is pregnant in this story, chapter 12 of Revelation, with who? The Messiah. What is Israel? Even to this day, many in Israel are still waiting for who to show up? The Messiah. Well, hate to break the news to you, but he's already shown up. But when Jesus showed up the first time, what was Israel waiting for? The Messiah. They were in birth pangs, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for their Savior, waiting for their hope. The sad part is they didn't recognize him and they didn't accept him for the most part. But Israel... Is the, is the woman in this passage. And all throughout scripture, Israel is referred to a woman by God. It's, it's a common reference. And you see in Micah chapter five, this is a passage you're very familiar with. We just went through the celebration of Christmas, and this pops up typically at Christmas, and it says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now, again, you could say, well, that's Mary. Well, the bigger the context is much bigger here. Mary was the physical giver of birth to Jesus, but Israel is really the birth, the birth mother of the Messiah. He came through Israel. He came not just through Israel, but through a specific tribe, Judah. And it says, when she who is in labor is given birth then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. There's this Picture in Revelation chapter 12 that God is painting for John and he's reminding him of something, that Jesus Christ came from the nation of Israel. Then he's going to talk in just a second about his leaving this earth after his earthly ministry. And then he's going to talk about him coming back. See, all of that is critical to the equation of redemption. I love the fact that Jesus Christ came. We just celebrated it. But if he didn't live a sinless life, it doesn't matter that he came, but he did. But if he lived a sinless life and he didn't die, none of it matters. If he lived a sinless life and he died and he's still in a tomb, it doesn't matter. If he was born, lived a sinless life, died and rose again, it begins to matter. But if he didn't ascend back on high so that he can come back, it doesn't matter. You see how all this fits together? And God is trying to tell John, I've got a plan, and that plan includes the coming of Christ as a babe, living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death on behalf of sinful man, rising again, ascending back on high, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and one day he's coming back. And at the midway point in the book, it's like God is driving home to John that message. So you have in Genesis... The sun is Jacob. In Revelation, it's going to be Israel. And again, that's important. I think the moon back in Genesis chapter 37 is Leah because by this time in the story, Rachel's dead. She died in childbirth. The 11 stars are Joseph's brothers, right? They got it. You think we're going to worship you? You think we're going to bow down to you, you little snotty-nosed idiot? we'll deal with you. And they did. Well, who's the the 12th brother? Well, it's Joseph. They represent, as we look at chapter 12 of Revelation, the 12 tribes of Israel. And these are the ones that are listed in the book of Revelation, Joseph being one of them. Who's the most important of all these brothers? It's Judah. Why? Which tribe did Jesus come through? The tribe of Judah. So what we have, again, is this picture of Israel giving birth to the Messiah. And that's important to this equation because as, as I've tried to drive home over the last 11 weeks, the story of the book of Revelation is about Israel, not the church. It's about Israel and God's plan for Israel because God's not done with Israel. So we go back to the chapter 12 and it says, another sign appears. So he's got the woman. Now he sees something else. Behold, a great red dragon. And this is the symbolism we love about Revelation, right? The dragon. We love the dragon. But who is he? Well, he's got seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads are seven diadems. It's already already getting squirrely, right? What, what, what is this? Who is this? What's going on? Who's the red dragon? Well, we got to ask that question and we got to get an answer to the question or the rest of the book makes no sense. And again, is he literal? Is he figurative? Guys, I don't think this is talking about a literal red dragon with a long tail and literally seven heads. Okay, I'm, I'm not an idiot. You may think I am, but I'm really not. It's symbolic. It's another sign. It's another symbol of a reality. This thing, whatever it is, represents something real or someone real. And we got to go again to the context. What do we see? We see some clues. Well, he's got seven heads. That's kind of weird. And we're not going to study it this morning, but we'll study it as we move on what those seven heads represent. He's got 10 horns. He's wearing seven diadems or crowns. There's some things going on here that give us a glimpse of who this is. He's got a tail. And with that tail, he sweeps one third of the stars from heaven to earth. But none of this tells me who he is yet. At least not in this context. So I got to, i got to search. i got to look around. Well, just go further, just a few verses, and he tells us. We get, the, we get the answer. There's a war in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Gee, I wonder who the dragon is. It's Satan. It's, it's the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So you have this scene taking place that John is getting through a vision and he sees Satan being thrown down. Now this is happening guys, just so we're clear, this is happening in the future. This is happening during the tribulation. There was another point in time where Satan was defeated, cast down in a sense when he tried to take over and put himself in place of God, we're told about this in the Old Testament, and yet God didn't let that happen. But what we have to understand is that during this period of time between when Satan originally rebelled against God and took angels with him, and this period of time talked about here in the tribulation, Satan has had access to God and heaven all during this time, just like he does right now. You ever read the book of Job? You ever wondered why Job could walk up to God and go, hey, have you considered your servant Job? He could, he could and can, to this day, walk into God's presence. He's a divine being, and he can accuse you. He's the accuser of the brethren. How do you think he does that? By email? By email? No, he walks right into God's presence and he says, have you considered Ken your servant? Did you hear what he said the other day when he walked out when he was in a hurry and his wife's car had a flat and he had to fix it? That's a Christian? That's a servant? Hey, have you considered Ken's thought life sometimes? Have you considered some of the shows he watches on TV? Have you considered your servant Ken? See, Satan is still able to do that. But what we have in chapter 12 is there's a point in time coming when he will be cast down to earth. Now, why is that significant? See, right now, Satan has access to heaven. Satan still has aspirations to what? Overtake God, take the place of God. He is On this earth, he is the prince of the power of this earth and of the air. He still is able to access both heaven and earth. But see, chapter 12, me, there's a day coming when he will no longer have access to God. And he will be cast down. And as we're told in this passage, he's hacked. Why? Because he realizes that realm will never be mine. I'll, I'll never have access to that again. So it says that when the woman, Israel, gives birth to the child, the Messiah, what happens? He stands before her, this one who is giving birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of mankind, and he is not happy. What did did Satan do when Jesus was born? He put it into Herod's mind to try to kill the Messiah. And he sent soldiers. Herod sent soldiers and they killed all the male children under two in order to try to kill this king of the Jews. What has Satan been doing all along? He's been trying to circumvent the redemptive plan of God. He tried to get Jesus to walk away from God's plan in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. When he was able to get the Jews and the Romans to kill Jesus, he really thought, I've accomplished my goal. I've gotten rid of the Messiah, but he didn't because he rose again. But see, he's still trying to stop the redemptive plan of God. That's his goal. But it says in verse five, this woman gives birth to a male child who we believe to be the Messiah, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So the dragon attacks the woman. He also attacks who? The child Why? Because he hates this plan. He hates everything about the redemptive plan of God. Well, who is this child? Well, as I've said, I I believe it's pretty clear that it's Jesus Christ, but if you're not convinced, let's again go to Scripture. It describes him as having a rod of iron. Revelation 19 goes on and says, I saw heaven open. This is later on in the story, and we'll cover it in greater detail when we get to that chapter. He sees a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and, by the, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Then he goes on. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This is speaking of the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with what? A rod of iron. So back in chapter 12, who's the baby? It's Jesus Christ. He was born for what? This day. And he's going to come back. And he's coming back differently than he came the first time. He won't come as a baby. He's going to come as the King of kings and Lord of lords, it goes on to tell us. But it tells us this child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is pretty interesting. This child, who I believe to be the Messiah, who I think John is trying to describe as the Messiah, is caught up. What's that talking about? Well, here's here's what's really fascinating as you study the scriptures. The word here in the Greek is harpazo. We've covered this word before. And it has to do with him leaving his ascension. It's the same word used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17, one of the key passages we use, we believe in because we think it teaches the rapture of the church. Here's what it says: "We who are alive, we being believers who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord." We will be caught up, we will be removed, we will be taken. It's the same word used of Jesus Christ being taken up into heaven. When Jesus Christ ascended into heaven after his resurrection, what happened? He's standing there with his disciples, and suddenly he's lifted off the planet. And they're standing there staring up into space as he leaves. And the angel goes, what are you staring at? He's going to come back the same way he just left. He was caught up. He left. He ascended on high. And that's important. See, this is emphasizing his ascension. Where did Jesus go after he died and resurrected? He went back to heaven. Where is he now? He's at the right hand of God. Mark 16, verse 19. That not enough for you? Romans 8 34. Where is he? He's at the right hand of God. Still not enough? How about 1 Peter 3, verse 21? Where is he? He's at the right hand of God. When John looked into heaven, Where did he see Jesus? At the right hand of God. Why is that important? Because he's not on this earth right now. We have the Holy Spirit, but Jesus Christ is in heaven, interceding on our behalf, but one day he's coming back. See, again, chapter 12 is giving John this overview of all that's going to happen as we move into the rest of the book. And we're told in verse six that the woman, Israel, is going to flee for their life. Israel being the Jewish people, they're going to flee, they're going to hide, and they're going to be given a place to hide by God. During the second half of the tribulation, guys, the Jews are going to be persecuted beyond belief. Now, if you think it's been bad for the Jews during our lifetime, during the last 50, 100, 2,000 years, it's going to be incredibly bad for them during this period of time. But they're going to be protected for how long? 1,260 days, and by the Jewish calendar, that's what? Three and a half years. The second half of the tribulation, they will be protected by God, even though they will be under great persecution by the Antichrist. For three and a half years, it will be his goal to eliminate them. Leave no Jew alive. Leave no Jew breathing. And he's also going to turn on any of those who have accepted Christ during the tribulation, which will be many. And we already know that he's going to persecute and he's going to martyr many believers during the persecution. And that's why it's called a time of great distress. Here's what's amazing too. If you go back and you look at the teachings of Jesus, he told us about this time. He told his disciples, chapter 24, of Matthew, when you see the abomination of desolation, when Antichrist sets up that idol of himself in the temple, that's what this is talking about. Spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, because it's going to be really hard to get out of town. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath For then there will be what? Great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. Now there are those who are saying, we're already in the great tribulation. Just look at the world. You know, I can can get on the internet. I can look at the news. I can look at Fox News, USA Today, CNN. I can see how bad things are in the world. But what Jesus Christ is telling you and me is, what you see right now is nothing compared to what's going to happen during this period of time, like nothing the world has ever seen until now, speaking of the future. And yet God is going to protect Israel. Now, why is that important to you and me? I'm not an Israeli. I'm not a Jew. But my God chose the people of Israel, and he chose for his Messiah, his son, to be born a Jew through Israel, through the tribe of Judah. And he made promises to Israel, and I believe my God is going to keep those promises. And that's what the book of Revelation is really all about. See, God's going to keep a remnant of the Jews alive because God has to fulfill all his promises to the Jews. But what is Satan and the Antichrist trying to do all through the tribulation? Get rid of every stinking Jew he can find. You see the cross purposes here? Keep a remnant alive so I can keep my promises. Eliminate every Jew so God can't keep his promises. Who do you think is going to win that battle? My God's going to win that battle. And that's what John is being told The dragon is angry. He's been thrown down to earth. His domain has been diminished by at least half. No longer has access into heaven. He's angry with the woman. He's angry about the child. He's attacking and attacking and he's persecuting and he's doing everything he can to thwart God's will. But what does God do? He protects his own. He protects his people. He sends her into the wilderness where she's nourished for a time and times and a half time. What in the world is that? It's really just simple math. And I'm not even good at math. Look at this. A time, one, times, two, half a time, half. What does that add up to? Three and a half. It's the second half of the tribulation. It's that great tribulation period when the Jews are being persecuted by Antichrist through the power of Satan. And Daniel talked about this very thing. This is what I love about the scriptures. How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and a half time and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. What's Daniel talking about? The very thing Jesus is talking about. The very thing that John is getting a vision of. There is three and a half years that are gonna be very, very tough on the earth. God will protect the people of Israel and it will come to an end and God will fulfill every promise he's ever made to Israel. Now, again, why is that important to me? Why is that important to you? Because we worship that same God. He is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. He will do what he promised to do. So Daniel has the same vision, same period of time, same three and a half years that Jesus talked about and that John is getting a vision of this remnant of the Jews will be kept alive because God's got to keep his promise. There's got to be Jews alive for him to keep his promise. They'll be protected. And again, Matthew 25, here's Jesus telling his disciples, When the son of man comes in his glory, who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep in his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those in his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now this is important that you understand this. He's still talking about the end times. And oftentimes we read this passage, this section of the Olivet Discourse, and we don't connect it with the end times. He's talking about the end times, second half of the tribulation, when the Jews are being persecuted, he's keeping a remnant of life alive. How does God choose to do it? Jesus tells us. He says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then he goes on. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger in prison? When did we do these things? We, we didn't even see you. What's his answer? Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, during the tribulation, when the Jews are fleeing to the wilderness to get away from the persecution of Antichrist, they will be protected by who? Gentiles who are taking them into their homes, Gentiles who are feeding them, Gentiles who are clothing them, Gentiles who are doing for them what the Jews should have done for the Gentiles centuries earlier. See, God is orchestrating the protection of his own people, the Jews, through Gentiles. And their actions will result in their salvation. And I'm not talking about salvation by works, guys. These are people whose God is redeeming and he's using them to protect the people of Israel. Isn't that just how God works? And Jesus knows about it and he told his disciples about it and by extension, we get to know about it. But you gotta connect all the dots. And we're told that Satan tries everything in his power, his mouth opens up and he He literally, it's like a flood, a flood of what? Water? I don't think so. But a flood of anger, a flood of deceit, deception. And he goes after these people and he's furious because he can't eliminate them. He's been cast down. He's angry. He tries to kill the Jews. He can't. They're being protected. He's getting angrier and angrier. And so what does he do? Verse 17, the dragon became furious and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's attacking anybody and everybody who has any association with God Almighty and Jesus Christ. Specifically those who keep the commandments of God, the Jews, and those who hold the testimony of Jesus, believers. See, everybody who has any relationship with God or his son is being attacked All during this time, because Satan doesn't give up easy. He may not be the brightest bulb in the box, but he is persistent. And he persists to the end. And he's going to turn his wrath on the believing remnant. He's going to turn his wrath on the uh, 144,000 Jews who have come to faith during the tribulation period. And he's going to try to stop the kingdom from coming. If he can keep Jesus in heaven and keep him from coming back, guess what that does? That stops the redemptive plan because he's gotta come back. He said he was gonna come back. And just like he's done all along, he's trying to thwart that plan. There has to be a remnant to redeem. There has to be some of the Jews left in order for the, the kingdom to be restored. I believe that's what the scriptures teach. I believe that's what Jesus promised. And we see it even in the book of Ezekiel. I'm not going to read this whole thing, guys, but go back and visit it. But the key verse is, then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. When? When he comes back. He's going to come back. He's going to set up his kingdom on earth. He's going to reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem. And he is going to rule over his people. That's what the book is going to tell us. That's what the book is going to teach us. And he will restore his people. So that's a lot, right? One chapter, 10 more to go. What do we do with this? Well, here's your questions. What evidence do we have? And a lot of you guys in the room are like me. You've been around a while. What evidence do we have that Satan has been on a mission to eliminate the people of Israel from the beginning? It's all around us and it ain't stopped yet. Look at this. Just look at what he's done over the centuries. In what ways does this chapter provide evidence of and encouragement about God's sovereignty? If you can't read this chapter and see the sovereignty of God, I don't know how to help you. Your God is in control, and that's what the angel, that's what Jesus, that's what God is trying to tell John. And then finally, have someone go back and read verses 10 and 11. What do these verses say are keys for surviving Satan's attacks? How should these words provide encouragement for us today? See, there's something we can do to survive the attacks of Satan. Because guess what? He's still hacked. He hadn't even been cast down yet, but he's hacked. And he hates you. He hates everything about you. And he is constantly attacking you. How do you survive that? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their attention. I pray that you would bless their time around the table. Father, I just pray that you would drive into our head that, that you are a great God. You're a mighty God. You are a powerful God. You are a sovereign God. You are in control, not just in the future, but right now, and that you have a plan that you're working. May we learn to trust you more. May we learn to rest in you more. And Father, may we understand that there's nothing we need to fear in this life. And that we look forward to a great and a wonderful future because of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.